Well, you can have a seat. So excited today um, on Father's Day. Come on. Can we give a hand for fathers and spiritual fathers and, and uh, uncles and brothers and people that just simply love people that love even kids that don't have biological fathers. Thank you for investing in people. Thank you for giving your life to something greater than yourself. Uh, just grateful for all the men in this room that give themselves to that task. Uh, I know this 100% that it pleases the heart of God. At whatever level you're doing it, it pleases the heart of God when you invest in people. And so well done, all you men. I'm excited uh, for you to hear from a spiritual father of mine. His name is Dr. Greg Borgon, and uh, I'll let him kind of tell his story. But he, um, man, he's done a lot. You know, it reminds me of that Johnny Cash song. I've been everywhere, man. Have you heard that? <laughs> This guy's been everywhere. He's been all over the world. He's done amazing things. Uh, he was in the U.S. Navy. He's, he's uh, been a vice president in, in a seminary. He's, he's, I mean, he's just done it all. He's got all kinds of degrees. He's smarter than probably all of us in here. And, um, and, uh, and so you'll see that in just a moment. But what, what I'm really excited about is to have him here to talk on Father's Day. Because one of the things that Dr. Borgon has done is he's dedicated his life to helping men. He started an organization called Heart of a Warrior. He's the founder and president of that, and it's an international type ministry that ministers to men all over the world. And uh, we are blessed to have him in our church today. And uh, I can tell you this, he's got plenty to say, plenty to say, and it's going to be good. And so I encourage you to lean in, listen in, take a swig of coffee, get your pens out, and write down as much as you possibly can and then ask the Lord what it is that the Lord is saying to you. Uh, but I believe it's going to be good. And so would you, would you do me this favor in welcoming Dr. Greg Borgon to the stage? Thank you. Thanks, brother. Love you, man. Well, I'm going to tell you what I told the first service congregation you're fortunate to have Daniel as your pastor. A man after God's heart. Uh, and uh, you need to know that I'm very proud of you, son, and what you've accomplished for the kingdom. You know, as I was growing up, I was 12 years old when my father abandoned our family, me and my two sisters and my older brother. And I remember in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, going before a judge with my mother on one side, my father on the other, and the judge was asking me who do I want to live with. And I loved them both. I was in an agony as a 12-year-old, and I couldn't say anything. And I remember that judge with his bony finger pointing at me and says, hurry up, son, we haven't got all day. I ran out of that, his chambers and onto the steps outside where there were two cement lions on either side, and I threw my arms around one of the lions, and I wept. And I committed and vowed no one would ever have that kind of control over my life again. But the judge had made a decision that I was to live with my father and his wife, who he had had an affair with, and lived under that roof for a short period of time, physical abuse and emotional abuse, and ran away. And underneath the bridge, heading towards Brimley, Michigan, where I knew my mother was and her husband, um, he came to rescue me and became my surrogate father, my stepfather, Vern. And on January 11th of this year, I was in Bay City, Michigan to take care of his affairs because he had passed away at 97 years of age. And I wouldn't be here today had he not taken me under his wing and loved me and cared for me. I wasn't of his blood, but he did so anyway, so I honor you, Vern. I honor you. 
Well, I've grown increasingly alarmed at the social diminishment of the role of the father in the family. And as a matter of fact, on a whim this morning before I came here, I went online to my home newspaper, the Star Tribune in Minneapolis, St. Paul, just to see what they were going to say about fathers. And what I found was a 50-year tribute uh, to gay pride over several pages, and buried in the deep recesses of the newspaper were two small articles about fathers. One was actually on the sports page. So pundits abound declaring and disparaging, um, making remarks as to the need, even the need of fathers, much less male influence in the home. And I wrote in my newsletter at Heart of Warrior Ministries that I do at once a month to men that have subscribed. And I made this following comment. I said, The disingenuous rhetoric heard on many news outlets and talk shows disparaging men in general and discouraging the role of fathers in the home is rampant. Many of these comments suggest fathers are not needed at all. The increasing chorus of negative remarks are becoming louder and more inflammatory. Then I went on to say that our culture is going off the rails. The inability or woeful refusal to define what a woman is, much less a man or even a father. The disregard of biological distinctions between a man and a woman. The agenda to destroy the nuclear family. The absence of healthy male influence for children, the growing percentage of fatherless homes, the removal of God from our society, the marginalization of the church, the assault of Christian beliefs and values, in my view, I said, have been primary contributors to a whole host of societal ills, let alone the rise of crime and violence in our nation. Listen to this carefully, folks. When sin goes unabated, its shrill voice grows louder. There is no dialogue in our society today. There's just a boisterous monologue. When sin goes unabated, its shrill voice grows louder. So I'm once again reminded of Paul's words to Timothy just before he was martyred. So you can imagine he wants to tell Timothy, his surrogate son in effect, his protege, his surrogate son, what was most important for him to remember as Paul goes to his death? And here's what he said. Preach the word, Timothy. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come, and by the way, I think it's upon us right now, when men will not put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own interests, They'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. But you, he says, Timothy, you, Timothy, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2-5. through five. So our role as a male influence, men, as a father, as a grandfather, is clear. We are to stand in bold relief against the backdrop of our culture, prepared to give a defense for the hope that's in it, because the only other choice is to acquiesce, fold back into culture, becoming transparent with it, and there's nothing about our life that will distinguish us from our world around us and draw anyone to God's son's cross. The gap has gotten so large, we're forced with a choice. Make a choice. So fatherhood was actually established in the Garden of Eden when God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, according to Genesis 1.28. As one writer put it, quote, providing sperm for conception is merely the beginning of God's expectations of fathers. Sperm can make a child, but it takes a real man to be a father. Some men, he goes on to say, who want to be good fathers have little understanding of what godly fatherhood looks like. So even though many progressives 
cannot or will not define what a woman is, I thought it would be interesting, as I mused in my mind, what if I was asked the question by a judiciary committee or a gathering of some sort, what is a father? What would I say? Well, it was interesting just because I, just before I came here, I'm at home in St. Paul taking a nap with a dog on our lap, on my lap. But I was in that kind of twilight zone, you know, I'm not fully asleep yet, and I'm not fully awake. And I started thinking this phrase kept coming in my mind about the father, the father, and what an acronym would look like. And so I came to, I thought I was hearing from the voice of God, or at least an impression, I jumped up, must have scared the dog to death, ran down on my office and wrote it right away. And then I added scripture to it. And there's a handout in here, or should be, on what it was. But here's what I came up with. A father is faithful. He's available. He's teachable. He's the only time you can be fat and not have to take a diet, be on a diet. Faithful, available, and teachable. Honorable, engaged, and respectful. That's what a father is. Those qualities. Now, regardless of our past or our parentage, we have the potential to be a godly father. You see, man, it's never too late to begin living a legacy worth leaving in the lives of others. Legacy is simply the aroma left in the nostrils of those God's called you to influence long after you're gone, and your goal is not to leave a stench but a pleasing aroma. If God were to call you home right now, man, what aroma would you leave? Would it be a pleasing aroma in the people that you're closest to? Or would it be a stench? So it's never too late to begin living a legacy worth leaving in the lives of others. And for those of you that may not be married, it's never too early to begin building a legacy that you can leave in the lives of others. But none of it, absolutely none of it, is possible without first becoming a man after God's heart. A man after God's heart. Now, Samuel Langhorne Clemens, does anyone know who that is? It's Mark Twain. Also known as Mark Twain, the American humorist, the lecturer, the essayist, the author of Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, once said with a wink in his eye, no doubt, the following... When a child turns 13, put them in a barrel. Put a lid on the barrel and feed them through a hole in the side. When they get to be 16, plug the hole. <laughs> now, that's not advice I'm giving you, and I'm not suggesting you as a father would do that, although you might be tempted on occasion. I'm not asking you to do that. But that was Mark Twain's advice. <laughs> So we don't have to go far, do we, for examples of poor parenting. The Bible's full of stories of poor parenting. Eli, the high priest under which Samuel was schooled, had two sons that were profligates. Samuel, even when he became uh, the judge and priest and judge of the nation of Israel, the reason why the Israelites came to him and wanted a king is because they said, your sons don't follow in your ways. So even with his sons, there were problems. And then we can take a look at the life of David and his children. So we have lots of examples of poor fathering. But pick up the newspaper any day of the week or listen to the news and, or tune in to talk shows, and there are one or more horrific stories of dysfunctional fathering. As a matter of fact, one of the things that really frustrates me, which is the Christian word for anger but it really does anger me and ticks me off, is the way men are often portrayed in ads as stupid, bumbling fools that need to be rescued by a woman that they've turned into a man. <laughs> because our society is trying to feminize men and trying to make women more masculine, and both have lost. And so consequently, it's not God's divine order. But they make us look like fools. Like, we need to be rescued because now we do do a few dumb things on occasion. I understand that. 
but we're not stupid. So to, uh, statistics abound regarding the consequences of the absence of a father in the home. The National Fatherhood Initiative has been collecting this data of these consequences for uh, absentee fathers for a long time. And here's what it says, what they, their, their results. Children raised in a father-absent home are affected in the following ways. Four times greater risk of poverty, more likely to have behavioral problems, two times greater risk of infant mortality, more likely to go to prison, more likely to commit crime, seven times more likely if they're a girl to become pregnant as a teen, more likely to face abuse and neglect, more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, two times more likely to suffer obesity, two times more likely to drop out of school. Sobering statistics, wouldn't you agree? Heart of a Warrior Ministries, which I've been involved in now and started 27 years ago, trains men to live lives of integrity and honor under God's authority. When we met with prisoners for four years in Lionel Lake's prison where we live, what became evident over the four years of working with these prisoners is literally over 90% of them had no father influence in their life. No positive father influence. If they had a father at home, it was an absent father. They were there, but they really weren't there. But most of them came from abusive relationships with their fathers. And these men had committed murder and heinous crimes, and they had no father or positive male influence in their life. So in some circles in our society, a father is actually deemed unnecessary. I mean, AOC, Alexandria Cortez, um, Ocasio-Cortez said recently um, that uh, about toxic masculinity in our society and that patriarchalism is just a remnant of white supremacism. And so she just shuffled men and fathers to the side and marginalized them with that comment. But she's not unique in those sentiments. But in God's economy, let me illustrate and underscore without equivocation, in God's economy, the role of the Father is absolutely crucial. Regardless of what society says, the role of the Father is absolutely crucial. Engaged, healthy fathers are important to the spiritual, emotional, physical, um, and intellectual well-being and health of children. The positive influence of a father in a home can't be underestimated. In a book titled, Why Men Hate to Go to Church, <laughs> by David Murrow, the following compelling statistic was cited. When a mother comes to faith in Christ, the rest of her family follows 17% of the time. But when a father comes to faith in Christ, the rest of the family follows 93% of the time. Isn't that an amazing statistic? Well, let me share with you that, in essence, there are three, uh, essentially three types of fathers. The first one is the absent father, or even the toxic father. They're apathetic, they're indifferent, they're uninterested, they're often self-centered, it's all about me and my needs. Uh, they're oblivious, they're unaware, they're detached. They may be physically present, but they're not emotionally or any other way, psychologically or any other way present. Some other characteristics that have been noted about these absent or toxic fathers, they're being friendly, they're often more friendly with their neighbors than they are with their family. They prioritize work over children and justify it by saying, I'm taking care of their needs. They should be satisfied. I'm, they avoid emotional connections with children. They minimize child's feelings. They refuse accountability. They're often involved in substance abuse. They choose their spouse over their child. Um, they lack involvement in the children's activities. 
And there is tons of negative verbal communication and criticism. Let me listen to this carefully, folks. When you keep criticizing your children, they will not stop loving you. They'll stop loving themselves. They lose all sense of worth and self-esteem and value. So if you over, overly criticize your children, they won't stop loving you. They stop loving themselves. So in the end, these absent fathers end up in a similar situation that they created themselves, lonely and alone. The second type of father is the emotional father, the immature father. At all the dance recitals and hockey games, which, by the way, is the only real sport. I just want you to know that. <laughs> They're a kid in adult clothes. They'd rather be a friend to their children than a father. And here are some other characteristics. They operate from a place of ego. They're either a diva or they say they're a doormat. They don't take personal responsibility. They're often blaming others. They're in a state of denial. They're not acknowledging a problem. They openly lack empathy. They swing from over-involvement to complete uninvolvement. Now, I know that's not true of any of you men in here. It's outside this church. So I'm just telling you what it looks like out there. Okay? All right. So they find it difficult proving, uh, providing guidance. Um, they just want to get along. Let me tell you what their future look, is going to look like. When their children reach the ages of between 23 and 25, they'll come to their father and they'll say, you know, Dad, when I was younger, I thought it was pretty cool. You were just like my friends, joked with my friends, talked like my friends. But you know what I needed more than a friend? I needed you to be my father. I needed a father in my life not a friend the third type is the strategic father which we're going to unwrap this morning let me just say succinctly and then we'll take a look at these six qualities of a strategic father succinctly they're observant in other words they're alert attentive watchful they're vigilant they're intentional which means they're deliberate they're purposeful they're focused they're engaged which means they're proactive and not reactive hands-on, action-oriented, and they're situationally responsible and responsive. Now, folks, this message is for fathers, uh, and we'll focus on what it means to be a strategic father from a biblical point of view, but this message is also for men yet to be married or to have children yet. So what does a strategic father really look like? What characteristics does he possess? What qualities does he exude? So in my view, there are six qualities that mark a strategic father. Let's look at the first one. A strategic father is child-centered. Now look at this passage carefully in Proverbs 22.6. Train a child in the way he or she should go and when they are old, they will not turn from it. Now, this doesn't mean train up in a child in the way you think that they should go. I've seen too many fathers try to live vicariously through their children to get them to accomplish something they were unable to accomplish themselves. Or they see their children as an extension of themselves, as a miniature them. And so they end up living again through the life of their children and having them conform or wear a set of clothes that doesn't fit them at all. So the passage really means trace up a child in the way that God has wired them to be, which means you as a father need to be aware of how God has wired them. Okay? So, we must do everything we can 
to help our loved ones navigate this difficult terrain. So what does that mean? Know their world. What are they interested in? Who are their friends? What are the trends they're paying attention to? What kind of activities are they involved in? I've told my grandsons, and through a set of tragic circumstances, Debbie and I, who have been married now for 53 years, had to raise our four grandsons. And every one of them, I said to them as they were growing up, be careful who you choose as a friend, because whoever you choose as a friend, you will become like them. Don't think for a minute they'll become like you. You will become like them. Understand their personality, their gifts, their talents, their aptitudes, their perspectives. Now, I find it interesting. I know how many of you have taken the Myers-Briggs, but the last letters are J or P. J is judging, P is perceptions, but it isn't actually what they mean by that. J means if you're a J, you, you just want to make a decision. Okay, get it over with. We got enough information. Let's go. I was the worst person uh, to go to be put on a committee when I was vice president of Bethel Theological Seminary because I believed what my passive mentor said about committees. He said a committee is appointed by the unwilling to do the unnecessary. That's what he said. Okay? Appointed by the, unnece appointed by the unwilling to do the unnecessary. But... Not all committees are like that, obviously. I'd rather be on a task force. But I'm the type of person, hey, we got enough information. Let's just pull the trigger here. But if you're a P, you want to keep your options open. Well, let's look at this possibility. Let's look at that possibility. Us J's need you P's because we have a tendency to make too quick of a decision sometimes. And you P's need us J's because you can't make a decision. But what is your child? Do you have any clue of the temperament, personality temperament of your child? Knowing how God has wired them in terms of their temperament will help you engage them and see them as God sees them and interact with them as God has created and made them. You don't need to read 12 books on personality temperament. You just need to understand and be observant about how they deal with life, how they make decisions, what they pay attention to. Also, you need to understand their learning style. Everybody learns differently. For instance, you may be a visual learner. So videos and things like that, how-to videos or whatever, you really learn a lot for those. Or you may be an auditory learner. You like hearing somebody expound on a particular subject. Or you might be an experiential learner. Or you might be an independent learner. Do you know what your child is? I mean, people who homeschool their children have to be tuned in to what is the best learning style for that child because they could have four children and four different learning styles. So you can't assume because of the way you have learned in your learning style, everybody else must be that way. So you have to be observant and aware of the learning styles of your children. Now, we uh, must do everything we can, as I said, uh, to help our loved ones navigate an ever-darkening world. And I don't care how little your flame is, it's all the brighter against a darker background. There's never been a greater time for the gospel of Jesus Christ than this time right now. Because the world is getting darker. Any other conclusion? You're living in ether. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that we cower in a corner in a fetal position and give up. It means that whatever flame we have, whatever size of flame we have of hope, is all the brighter against a darker background. So we need to help our children not only navigate our culture, but understand what true north is, which is Jesus Christ in the world and the Word, so they can navigate an ever darkening world. You can't make your decisions, uh, the decisions for your children, but you can teach them how to make good uh, decisions. Remember this simple fact. You are responsible for yourself. You are not responsible for somebody else, but you are responsible to them. In other words, the only one I can take responsibility for is myself. 
all four of my grandsons, I am responsible to them, but I can't force them to make the right decision. I, I'm responsible to them to train them how to make the right decision. What they do with it is between them and the Lord. They can only be responsible for themselves. When you learn that simple fact, then you'll avoid some agony raising children. Right? Because we often take responsibility. Now, when they're younger, you have to be responsible for them, for their safety and security. But when they reach the age of accountability, you have to shift your mindset and say, hey, I'm responsible to them but I cannot take responsibility for how they're going to live. And that takes a weight off of your shoulders, but it's also an awesome responsibility because you realize you have to be actively involved in their life. Now, for that reason, um, Debbie and I decided when they were very young um, that we needed to be our grandchildren's strategic parents, their surrogate parents. So what I decided to do was to give each of my four grandsons values. Braden is my strength and honor boy. Kieran is my courage and valor boy. Galen is my goodness and integrity boy. And Lachlan is my truth and wisdom boy. God laid on my heart what values to give them because I knew this. Every decision of any consequence anybody makes in life is based on a value system they hold, whether they can articulate that value or not. And when they've decided not to put Jesus Christ and his word on the throne of authority over their life, one day they'll make a decision that's honorable, and the next day they'll make a decision that's despicable. Why? Because the value set inside their life is incongruent, inconsistent, and incoherent. The only thing that provides consistency, coherence, and congruency is making a decision who's going to stand in authority over what you believe in value. So I knew the values were important. But at first when I gave them to him, it was just kind of a neat way in which Papa, that's what they call me, Papa greeted them. Strength and honor. He'd say, strength and honor, Papa. But I was always looking for that teachable moment. And I'll just tell you one story about how I drove the point home and what that meant. To go beyond just being this wacko way Papa greeted them. As Braden was at a, a, the Child Development Center at Bethel Seminary when I was working there. And this was before they went to school, actually. And I got a call from Ellen, who was the director of the CDC, the Child Development Center. Now, and this is what I heard from her. I need to talk to you about your grandson. Now, guys, when you hear that about your son or your daughter, somebody says that to you in authority, what's your first thought? Uh-oh, what did they do? What did they do? To make matters worse, when I got there, I got and she brought me into the office and she closed the door. I said, oh, you know what I thought? Who did he cold cock on the playground? <laughs> then she said this. She says, I want to share with you something amazing that I observed in the playground with your grandson, Braden. He's very popular. Everyone loves playing with him. But he noticed they wasn't playing, they weren't playing with this little girl. She was all alone. I watched him stand up in front of his friends and say, I will not play with you until you play with her. I knew what this conversation was about. That's my boy. I was so proud of him. So we get in the car and we're driving home. I said, What happened at school today, Braden? Of course, he told me everything except the playground. So I said, Playground, Braden. Playground. And then he told me, and I said, how does Papa greet you, son? He says, strength and honor. How do you greet Papa back? Strength and honor. I said, son, what you did on the playground took strength, and you did the honorable thing. Now, to this day, all of my grandsons greet me the same way. As a matter of fact, at 1023 this morning, Braden, who is now 23 years of age, um, sent me a text message. He's a welder for an international company. Here's what he said. This was just, just after the first service. I got this text message from him. Thank you, Papa, for all you have done for me. <clears throat> you have set an amazing example of what a man should be and how a father should act, even when he's punching holes in your walls, which he did, <laughs> and pushing the limits of your patience. You have been an amazing influence on my life, Papa, 
and I will always keep that. I love you, Papa. Strength and honor. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> That's my boy. <laughs> Number two, a strategic father is protective. If anyone, and I, one of the reasons I love scripture so much is that God doesn't beat around the bush. He just tells you like it is. There's no passive aggressiveness in God's word. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Oh, wow. That's, that's brutal. Well, men have been created, as you need to understand from God's point of view, for three primary purposes, guys. A cost to die for, a challenge to embrace, and loved ones to protect. Every man I know wants to be a part of something larger than himself and know that his life matters. Ladies, you need to know that about your men. That's why they take risks. They want to be a part of something that really matters, something of significance, to know that their life counts. Every man I know wants to be a part of something like that. Every man I know uh, needs to be challenged. They might whine about the bar being too high that they have to stretch for, the responsibilities or the requirements they have to fill. But when you lower the bar, they're going to abandon it anyway. So you need to keep that bar high so that they can reach for it. Not totally out of reach, which will break their spirit, but within reach, but make it high enough. And the third quality or the third purpose is loved ones to protect. For the single man... It's the uncared for, the underrepresented, the unloved, the marginalized, the ones who have been kicked to the curb by society. That's who you're to protect. For you that are married and have children, you begin with your wife and extend to your children and then anybody else within your sphere of influence. So the, the whole idea is here. And besides that, the role model for those three purposes is Jesus Christ. Now, I really get upset about our society making Jesus so effeminate, meek and mild Clark Kent. You need to understand he may be the Lamb of God, but he's also the Lion of Judah. Amen. And you need to just, you just take a look at Revelation and what it says about him. You get a complete different picture in some respects of who he is that makes his mercy all the more significant when it's put against the backdrop of his strength. So, those three purposes. He had a cause to die for, which was the salvation of mankind. He had, loved one, or he had the challenge to embrace, which was the scourge and the cross. And he had loved ones to protect, which is you and I. So he is our model man for manhood. So, for the unmarried man, keep in mind, you guys, that it's the unwanted, the uncared for, the unloved, the underrepresented, the widowed, the marginalized. There are three, uh, there are several areas in the development of a child that needs perfection, uh, protection. It's not just safety and security. It's also about the esteem needs, about being loved. It's, it's about spiritual needs. Those are our responsibilities. But a strategic father provides a cocoon of protection through what the Bible calls unconditional love. There are six words in the Greek in the Bible for love. This one, which is the only one that Christ commands us to do, is called agape or agapao, which is unconditional love, which is simply means this, a genuine concern for the well-being and welfare of another individual, even if they're unlikable. Because it's action-oriented. It always has been. It's not emotionally based. What I've learned over time, men, is that when you practice that kind of love, I've been somebody that you don't like at all, but you do what's in their best interest, you will find something emotionally lovable about them over time. If you just are paying attention and you submit to God in obedience... To love others. But what's also amazing to me is we come to Jesus Christ because of his unconditional love for us, but then we turn around and make our love conditional to people who matter to us. We say to our wives or our children, I love you if. That's conditional. Or I love you because. That's conditional. 
instead of I love you regardless. I don't agree with the decision you make. I don't agree with way the, the direction your life is headed, but I love you regardless. And don't, men, don't believe this nonsense. Well, my kids know I love them. They need to hear it and hear it often. I love you. Son, I just love you. I know you've disappointed me on occasion. You've broke our fellowship on occasion. But don't mistake one thing. That doesn't mean I don't love you. Our relationship is fractured, but I love you. So this unconditional love, how does it look? Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. Now this is the passage that's been co-opted by every wedding I've ever done. You know, they read this passage, and then they forget about it. <laughs> but it has far more to do with just your way of life as a follower of Christ than at a wedding. So when you look at it, you find out there are seven things that this kind of love that I've been describing is and eight things it's not. Listen to this. Here's what it says it is. Now notice it's not emotionally based. It's action-oriented. It's focused on others. Love is patient. Love is kind. Rejoices with the truth. Always protects. Always trusts always hopes, always perseveres. Is that how you love your children, men? Your grandchildren, grandfathers? Here's what it isn't. It does not envy. It does not boast. It, it is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil. Is that how you love your children, men? Your grandchildren, grandfathers? That's unconditional love, action-oriented. A genuine concern for the well-being and welfare of another individual, even if they're unlikable. <laughs> Number three, a strategic father is engaged. It says, Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So I've heard many parents express the following sentiment. Gee whiz, I wish I had gotten an instruction manual with the birth of my kid. <laughs> well, actually you have. It's called the Bible. Because the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, pierced in the division of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, discerner of the thoughts and intents of your heart. It's an inspired word of God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that a man or woman of God is prepared for every good work. And there is a reason why it's the hardest book to pick up after you've laid it down for a while. Because it's the inspired word of God. And you men have probably experienced this. Well, I'm going to do my devotions. We feel puffed up and proud. I'm going to do my devotions this morning. Haven't done them for three months, but I'm going to get back on track. So you start, and your mind starts to wander. Your eyes start to get drowsy. And you say, well, this is, I chose the wrong time of day to do this. Maybe I should do it later. And you never get back to it. Why? Because it's of the enemy. It's the only offensive weapon you have. According to the armor of God, everything else is defensive. It's called the sword of the spirit for a purpose. Because if you start to master God's word, you become the enemy's formidable foe. And that's the last thing he wants. He would rather control and manipulate you or marginalize you because he knows when you get a spiritual backbone, he can no longer do those things. And so he's going to keep you out of the word as much as he can. You have to be warriors of the word. You have to be warriors of the word. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6, These commandments that I give to you today are to be upon your hearts, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk on along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and, in, and on your gates. 
Now that's incremental intentionality is what I would call it, where it's always in front of you. You're always thinking through the grid of God's word. So I've learned over time that parenting is situational, okay? So the style or approach changes in a given situation or circumstances or events along the way. Sometimes, men, you're called to be sages on the stage and other times guide by the side. So the question is, when do you do, when are you a stage on the stage and when are you a guide by the side? This next slide will use it as an example. Now, Galen, who's my goodness and integrity boy, I had to train him how to cut the yard because I've just got to, in full disclosure, I'm a little compulsive. I believe that if a helicopter flies over my yard, they should see this beautiful pattern, just like the baseball diamond. That's how I cut my yard. So when I was trying to train Galen to do it, I was going to be a sage on the stage, which means I give them direction. I don't explain the reasons why. I said, this is how you do it, Galen. How to fill the tank, how to use the lawnmower, how to set the right pace, make sure that you go ahead and clip the, the uh, grass around the edging first before you actually use the lawnmower. And so I went through all of the steps because it was a task he had never done before. So he lacked competence and he lacked confidence. So I needed to be a director. Just tell him how it's done. As he gained a little bit more confidence, but he still lacked confidence, I still wouldn't let him touch the lawnmower. I became a coach, still a sage on a stage, but this time, not only did I tell him what to do, I told him why it should be done this way. Okay? Then, when he gained a little bit of confidence and now had a little bit of confidence, I shift to being a supporter where I'd cut a little bit of the yard, he'd cut a little bit of the yard. I'd cut a little bit, he'd cut a little bit. Then, finally, when he had enough competence and competence, I became an observer or a mentor. I stood up on the deck. Ah, oh, you missed that blade over there, Galen. That was so much fun. I had so much fun doing that. Oh, there's a section. You, you, you got to cut that again. <laughs> there's, you know, one thing my wife says that God hasn't worked in my life is my impishness. Every once in a while it comes out. But I, I just love doing it. But I was actually, I moved to a sage on a stage, or a guide by the side, and, and having cut it. The point being is you have a default style, guys. And if that's the only style you ever use, if you're always a director, pretty soon a child who is independent, who has got the confidence and competence to do it, is going to leave your presence and not listen to you because you're still being a director when you should be a delegator. Or if you do something stupid, like I could have gone in the garage and says, Galen, there's the lawnmower, there's the yard, Go to it <laughs> without giving them any instruction on how to cut the yard. That would have been dangerous, wouldn't you agree? So the idea is to be a chameleon leader in your home, to change the color of your leadership to suit the environmental conditions. And each of your children are going to be different. You have to assess what is their readiness level, what is their competence and confidence related to this task I'm requiring them to do. Or else you're going to give them a formula for failure. Number four, a strategic father is a model. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promises for both the present life and the life to come. Now the greatest gift you can give your wife, men, and your children is a godly life. It's a gift that keeps giving. We always think it's got to be this major gift, physical gift, trip to Disneyland, whatever it might be. But it's really not. It's all these smaller things. I'll give you a challenge, man, that I didn't do in the first service. I did this in Odyssey Arena in Belfast with 4,000 men. I said, here's your challenge if you've got the guts to do it. Oh, I said, I, maybe I shouldn't mention it because most of you men in here won't have the courage to do it. And so I started talking a little bit, and they said, well, well, maybe I should challenge. Oh, maybe not. Finally, a guy stood up in the city and said, will you please tell us? 
I says, I want you to outserve your wife for three weeks and expect nothing in return. Dead silence. Just like it is now. So the idea is outserve your wife and your children and expect nothing in return, not a pat on the back. First of all, if you did that with your wife, the first thing you just go under is, what is he having to apologize for? What did he do? <laughs> this is a shock. But it's incremental. It's the small things that matter, man, to your children and to your wife. Consistency over time. Outserve your wife. That's the challenge. Outserve your wife for three weeks, expecting nothing in return. See what happens. See what happens. So the whole idea again is that to live a godly life. Because most of us as fathers like to wax eloquent to our children. This is what I learned from life, son or daughter. This is what you should do. But let me give you a clue. Nobody cares what you have to say. Did you hear me? Nobody cares what you have to say until they observe how you live. And if you live a life of integrity, honor, authenticity, and courage, people will ultimately want to hear what you have to say, even if they disagree with you. Why? Because they cannot get past a life well lived. They can deconstruct your faith system. They can argue with your beliefs. They can say, your truth ends where my nose begins. But what they can't argue against is a life well lived, one of consistency, coherence, incongruency they can't argue with that let me say it again nobody cares what you have to say until they observe how you live and if you live a life of integrity and honor authenticity and courage people will ultimately want to hear what you have to say even if they disagree with you why because they cannot get past a life well lived life will speak louder than your words your children watch you all the time they're watching you remember the greatest gift you can give is a godly life but godliness is more caught than taught your children learn more from what you do than what you say make no mistake about it they're watching you
whether you know it or not. Pretty sobering, isn't it? Number five, a strategic father is resolute. This passage here, I have found to be the most succinct statement about the full impact of the gospel in all of Scripture. As a matter of fact, when I take men through phase one of Heart of a Warrior, I require them to memorize this passage. What you will find in this passage are three very significant things. One, the benefits that accrue to your account when you receive Jesus as Savior. Now, notice I use the word receive instead of accept because nowhere in the New Testament do you find the words accept Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean, folks, if you said, and when you made your statement of faith, you said, I accept Jesus. God knows where your heart is, so don't worry. You're still, you're still in the game. But the fact of the matter is, the word receive is chosen for a particular reason and not accept. Because if it's acceptance, who's in a position of arbitration and decision? You are. Oh, as long as it measures up to my concerns and my reservations and I get what I want to get out of it, then maybe I'll capitulate and bend my knee. But not until then. But when you receive it, you're receiving something you didn't earn. Something that was provided for you long ago but you need to receive it as God's gift. So that's the first thing. The second thing it says, it's all about lordship. What are the obligations, the duties, responsibilities that we have to become followers of Christ, which is to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And then finally, to make it valid and certified is that the grace that appeared is Jesus Christ, who this passage says is not only man, but God in the flesh. Now let's just look at the passage. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That is a powerful statement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know many men who have received Jesus as Savior and refuse to embrace him as Lord. They don't realize that they need to take what they perceive themselves to be, lay it out underneath the foot of the cross, release it, and God will give them back their true selves. Because they'd rather embrace what they know, even though it might be dysfunctional and sinful, then give up what they know for something they're afraid of what's going to be required, they're going to be required of. And so they don't make that decision. But you have to lean into your fear, take who you think you are, lay it at the foot of the cross, and God will give you back your true self, man or woman, who he designed you to be because you see none of your mistakes happenstances or coincidences. The enemy may try to convince you of that, but that doesn't what Psalm 139 says. Psalm 139 says, I superintended your formation in your mother's womb. I knew you before you ever were. I set the number of days you would walk this earth. And in essence, what he's saying is you were on my heart before you ever came to be. You are not a mistake. And it says in Ephesians 2.10 that God has prepared a purpose for your life in advance, it says, before you ever came to be. So isn't that comforting to know that you're a planned event, that you are on the heart, we're on the heart of God before you ever came to be. So to be resolute means admirably purposeful, determined and unwavering. Here's something else I want to leave with you today. And remember this. 
Obedience to him will always produce strength. Disobedience will always produce weakness. You see, whenever you're feeling impotent or weak because of unconfessed sin or dysfunctional habits, then you need to determine what is it that's holding me back? What's the barrier that I need to confess and lay before the cross? Obedience to him will always produce strength. Disobedience will always produce weakness, pure and simple. Finally, a strategic father knows God. James 4.7 says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, I know a lot of men who forget the first part of that verse and feel that by their own energy, their own discipline, their own strength, I'm going to resist the devil and he'll flee from me, only to repeat sin over and over again in the same area. They can go ahead and wrap a steel band of discipline around their behavior, getting it to conform to some acceptable standard that's kept in place by the tenacity of their will, the fellowship they keep, or the rules they obey. But sooner or later, they get away from those constraining and restraining influences. Life cascades in on them. The steel band snaps, and they revert back to behavior they thought they had victory over. They make all of these promises, and they erect that steel band again, and they cinch it up real tight, only to fall again. Because they forgot the first part of this verse. Submit yourselves then to God. Then you can resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It takes submission before resistance, not resistance before submission. So to become a strategic father, a man must first, if he hasn't received Jesus as Savior and Lord, you've got to establish a relationship with your heavenly father. That means to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. And the prayer might go something like this. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and the Savior of the world. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I believe that through your sacrifice, I am a new person. Forgive me for my sin and fill me with your spirit. Now, for some of you, you've already made that initial decision to establish the relationship, but you've lapsed. You're mired in sin that you had victory over in the past that now has consumed you again. So you need to restore your relationship with your Heavenly Father. The first act, the initial act of conversion, was to establish the relationship. Restore the relationship is what's often been called in the church is recommitting your life to Christ. So that prayer would look something like this. Heavenly Father, I confess my sin of disobedience. I admit I have violated your standards for holiness. I recognize that our fellowship has been broken. I acknowledge that my sin resulted in Christ's suffering on the cross. Please forgive me and restore my relationship with you. Now, one thing I've learned about men in the decades that I've ministered to men is that they can play mental gymnastics with their commitments. They can say in their mind, well, I'm going to recommit myself to the Lord or I'm going to commit myself to the Lord for the first time and never act on it. But I know if a man makes a public declaration in front of people he loves of how he's going to live his life, there's a 90% chance he's going to follow through with it. So men, I'm going to ask you to be courageous right now. My friend Erwin McManus defined courage as the following. Courage, he says, has never been the absence of fear. It's always been the absence of self. So I want you to lean in your fear. Maybe you need to receive Jesus Christ for the first time. Acknowledge God's gift and embrace it. Or maybe you need to recommit your life to Christ and decide that you're going to live under new management. Or maybe today on Father's Day of all days, you want to plant your flag and say, as for me and my house, we will live for the Lord and I will try to be under God's grace the father I need to be to my children. 
If any of those are your desire this morning, I want you to stand right now. That's what I mean about public. I want you to stand. If God is tugging at your heart, man, I'm not forcing you to stand. Don't feel peer pressure. Stand only if God is laying it on your heart. I want you to stand. All right, if you bow your heads and close your eyes, I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I am asking your anointing of these men, whatever decision that they've made, give them the strength and the power of your spirit to live out in bold relief the commitment they're making this day. For it's not only for their sake, but the sake of their spouses and their children. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, men. So, are you an absent father, an emotional father, a strategic father? My suggestion and my recommendation, my encouragement, my exhortion, I want to exhort you to be a strategic father, which means that you'll be child-centered, you'll be engaged, protective, a model, godly, and resolute. Strength and honor.